Hey everybody, this is Opposing the Matrix. It is, what is today? Today is the 6th of November, 2019. And I have with me Ralph Epperson. And hey Ralph, how you doing buddy? I'm good, fine there David, how are you sir? <laughs> okay. Um, so today we're going to be talking about uh, the Clinton conspiracy and we're going to be talking about Government 101. But Ralph, why don't we... Uh, why don't you go ahead and explain what's involved in the uh, Cl the Clinton ex uh, conspiracy uh, videos? Yeah, that's a good place to start. I think of the two. Uh, they're both, I think, interesting. Each one's a little less, uh, uh, close to an hour, I think. Clinton's uh, 45 minutes long, and the government one is uh, one hour and 10 minutes. So that's going to give you two, uh, two hours of time. Uh, Bill Clinton, in 1992, told America when he accepted the Democrat uh, nomination for president at the convention. Bill Clinton told us two, that two men had gotten him into politics. One was John Kennedy, and the other was uh, Dr. Carol Quigley. And he said, I'll be bored, I think, my camera is sitting there. Right. Oh, you're okay. perfectly Chris, centered. Now centered now, yeah. So anyway, he said uh, two men got him into politics, and one was John Kennedy, and the other was uh, Dr. Carol Quigley, a professor he had at Georgetown. And so when he said that, I said, I know who he is, because I read his book, Tragedy and Hope. And, and, but he said, quickly got him into, uh, into politics. And I said, uh, if, if that's true, then he knows there's a conspiracy, because Quigley taught him that at Georgetown. So I did some more research, and I found out why he went to Georgetown, and that was because of Senator William Fulbright. Fulbright was a senator from Arkansas. And he got to know little Billy Clinton, I guess, someplace in the, maybe at a meeting or whatever it was. And he told him how he could become president. And he said, you go to Georgetown first. And then after you go to Georgetown, get uh, join the uh, Rhodes Scholarship Program. And then you could come back and join the CFR. Because uh, William Fulbright was a member, has, had been a Rhodes Scholar, and had joined the CFR. And so Clinton figured it out. So that's why I call it Bill Clinton's Conspiracy, mm -hmm. which means Bill Clinton is not a conspiracy theorist. He's a conspiracy realist. He knows it's real because he was taught it, and they made him president because wow. that's how powerful this is. Now, he also learned that, we, that uh, the, uh, the CFR planned World War II. In fact, it was created to condition us to take World War II to get us into a world government, uh, the United Nations, because the League of Nations had failed. We'll talk about that. And that war, World War II, only killed 53 million people. So Kerr quickly says, I have no aversion to that, meaning this conspiracy, and what they do, what their plans are, or their modes of operation. Whatever it is, I have no aversion to it. 
And Clinton admitted that verbally, I mean, not verbally, but he did so because he said, Quigley taught me everything I know, he got me into politics. So I now know there's a conspiracy, and they elected me president. Clinton said that with his own mouth. We're going to see that. You'll see it. Also, by the way, you might enjoy knowing this. George Bush, the father, intentionally threw the election to Bill Clinton. Huh? What? What did you just say? That's weird. George Bush, the father, took orders from the CFR and said, we want you to throw the election. I'll prove that. But wow. it's a, there was a precedent set in 1984. Walter Mondale, the Democrat, was told to throw the election to Ronald Reagan, and so Mondale threw the election because he also was a member of the CFR. Reagan apparently never joined. He never became officially a member. I don't doubt that he was probably going to the lectures and meetings and everything else. But we're, notice, no one in this country has ever said that. Can you imagine George Bush intentionally losing an election? Can you imagine Walter Mondale doing that because the CFR ordered him to do it? Right. We're going to talk about that. So that's part of that story. Wow. Bill Clinton is not... They call people like me a conspiracy theorist. Well, I want you to know that I'm not only... Well, I, I can't say that I've ever been made part of the conspiracy, but I know more about them than 90% of the people in this whole country that knows more about this conspiracy. So I'm, not, I'm, I'm proving it's real because I know it's real, not because of personal experience, but because I've done my homework. Uh -huh. So I'm a, I call myself a conspiracy realist like Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton has never admitted being a conspiracy theorist. He's a conspiracy realist. And by the way, he put that in his own book. You'll see that documented. He put wow. it in his book. You can read it. He said it with his own mouth. Oh, my goodness. I did not hear Clinton talk, give that speech. I don't listen to the conventions. So after that, after someone called me, I had probably 10 phone calls. Did you hear what Clinton he said? I said, no, what did he say? He admitted that he was a student of Dr. Quigley. I said, you're kidding me. He said that, yes. So I went looking and I actually found it. I uh -huh. saw it. There's a clip out of him admitting it. He's admitting that there wasn't not only a conspiracy, but they planned both sides of World War II that killed 53 million people. Oh, my goodness. And so Quigley had no aversion to that. Uh-huh. That's one last thought. At the end of this thing, I'm going to show you that, that uh, uh, Carol Quigley, the mentor of Bill Clinton, later did have some problems with that. He had what I call a mea culpa. He says, I still have no objection to their to their uh, program and what they're doing. I don't like the way they're doing it. Now notice, Bill Clinton's never done that. So uh -huh. Bill doesn't mind the fact that they planned World War II in 1920 by creating the CFR to convince us to have a second world war so we could have a United Nations world government. And then even if we have to kill 53 million, that's okay because so, we're going to do it. And they did it. So quickly had problems with it until finally someone, and I'll tell you the story when we get there later on in the DVD, about how someone reached him and said, listen, you better take a look around. So he wrote a second book, Quigley did, called The Anglo-American Establishment. And by the way, on the cover of the magazine, maybe because the, the publishers did it, 
they took the flag and reversed it upside down, which means it's a sign of a nation in peril or someone right. in peril. And so they admitted in the in the second uh, the second book that America was in peril, and boy, it is an been because of wow. Bill Clinton. This man is so. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you one little funny story. I think this is funny, but uh, I forgot there was someone's funeral in a church, and uh, the the. Uh, the, the podium for the church was, I say, uh, as, as he's facing the audience, he's on the right-hand side. And in, right in front of him in the first pew is Bill Clinton and Hillary and I think Reagan, Reagan you know, three or four other vice presidents and senators. And uh, Hillary, Bill and Hillary are both like this. I don't know if you can see that or not. But anyway, it looks like they've fallen asleep. So the person that put that picture on Facebook said, this is amazing. That's the first time Bill and Hillary ever slept together in 10 years. <laughs> that's you know, yeah, that's not, I don't think I say that in my DVD, but that, that's just a thought. Well, listen, I'll give you one last comment, and then uh, we can start. Or we can talk about the government thing, maybe a couple of things to get their attention. But anyway, uh, I, I did a talk show once uh, with a man, I think his name was Larry somebody, who was in Clinton's cabinet as a governor. And I was a co a co guest, so the three of us were on the air. Of course I'm in Tucson. The guy was probably in Arkansas and the host was probably in Topeka. So we're all talking on the phone. So I said, Can I ask your guest a question? He said, Yes. I said, Listen, I have to believe I said, I want to thank you for what you've done to tell us about what Bill Clinton is or who he was. I said, But I've always believed that Bill Clinton and Hillary had an open marriage. Mm-hmm. And he said, yes, they not only have it, but everybody in Arkansas knows that. Right. And that's why Bill can have Monica Lewinsky and seven other women rape him. And mess, you know, just become a terror to women because he's got an open marriage. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, there are people that believe that uh, Chelsea is not the daughter of Bill Clinton. Yeah, yeah, that Vince Foster actually was. Oh well, I think it's not. It's Webb Hubble or Hubble Hubble is I think his name is. You can put a picture side by side of Wes and Well Well Hubble, somebody Hubble who was uh, Hubble. was it West? You can put them side by side with Chelsea. And boy, if if uh, if you can't tell them their mother, father, and daughter, yeah, you're missing the point. So who huh. knows? So apparently, Bill uh, Hillary is also admitting that they have an open marriage. Well, supposedly she's bisexual too, and uh, and prefers women. So, you know, I've, I haven't heard her say that, you know, outright. But uh, that's the rumor. Let's just put it that way. Now, this is the second one we're going to be doing. That's my copy of the DVD. Now, I make copies with it. If you want to buy this from me? Go to my website. You can buy Government One Hundred One. This is the first time anybody's ever put it together like this. I'm very serious. Really, for the America is not a republic. It's never been it as we define it. But James Madison defined it a republic as a uh, representative democracy. Did you know that? In the Federalist Papers, he defines a, a democracy as the people meeting and making decisions. But he says that when it gets to 13 states, there's too many of us. So we've got to have a republic, meaning we'll have a representative democracy. 
So it's still a democracy, but it's a democracy of, of our leaders, not of the people, which right. means we believe to, the Constitution says we've got a republic, which it does say that. It guarantees us a republican form of government. And we patriots all think, well, that means we've got it because the concept the republic is defined as a constitutional government where the government is limited by the power of government. No, no, no. That's not what Madison said in the Federalist Papers. Mm-hmm. He says it's a representative democracy. That's so scary. Had a republic. Never, never, never. It's in the Constitution. Republic, and it's defined in the Federalist Papers as a representative democracy. Well, democracy is mob rule, isn't it? Sure it is. In fact, yeah. I, show, I show you, my, I don't think I do it. I got, maybe in the government want to want to do that. I have seven men on an island. Well, it starts out with two, with one, and then he gets another, so there's two on the island, and finally a third, and then suddenly there's uh, four people over the other side of the mountain they didn't know about, and I'll show you what happens when they start interacting, and what kind of government they want to create. is a government that the four people can vote away the rights of the three. That's called yeah. a democracy. Yep. No That's one. Right. I'll give okay, last little story. I, I was invited to speak to a I don't guess a history class or something in a high school. And they had those accordion doors where you you know you squeeze them together. So two rooms got together. I was talking to 40 or 50 students instead of 25. So I used the blackboard. I used this little example. I think it's in here on the government. Maybe not really. I showed them what happens when four people vote their, their rights away from three people because that's called a democracy. And they've got the right because that's what the democracy is, majority rules. No matter what they what they say, they've got to rule. If they want to legalize cannibalism when they're the majority, we become the next only thing that remains is which meal are we going to be? That's exactly. how bad democracy is. It's a worse mm-hmm. form of government. Well, not really. Actually, worse than that. But that's second second worst. So we're going to talk about that. And by the way, America is not... Democracy word oligarchy. We don't use that word, but I'm going to use it a lot. And we're a fascist. I'm going to define fascism. And the, the, the people that are fascist today are not fascists. Wait till you see what the definition is. Because America is constitutionally a fascist oligarchy. And it has been one of those since the inception of this government. Wait till you see it. It's all carefully dropped in your lap one step at a time. That's good. We examine all forms of government. That's what this is all about. Tell me who else has done that. I can't find anything like that in my entire life. No, me either, Ralph. Me either. That's why I like listening to you and I like watching your videos and stuff because you you explain it. You work out every little detail, you know, one tier at a time, you know, one until you finally get, get to the top, and it works out really well that way. And I think a lot of people understand things a lot clearer that way. Because a lot of people are visuals. I'll start with, I promise I'll end with this. I, I was offered a chance to teach at a community college. So I, I walked, I've never taught in my life, but I lectured at, at this guy's uh, class. And he said, you're a natural born teacher. I don't know what you mean. So he said, we're going to get you to teach us. You can't. I don't have a master, master's degree. You have to have a master's to teach at a community college. Well, I don't have one of those. So they, they rigged it up, rigged it up, and I got one. So the first day I walked in, there's a big poster board. Uh, I, I paper, post, you know, there's a three-section green board, and then the fourth section 
was the same size of one-fourth, but it had a corkboard. You could pin things up there. There was this big poster of there of the globe uh, drawing, a cartoon, you know, taken off from the moon, and it's the size of a pie plate, you know, pizza. And it's got people all over the place that they're falling off. In fact, the cartoonist is drawing people falling off the globe. So I said, how many of you believe that? You know, I will be honest with you, about half of them did because they didn't know me. They didn't know which side I was going to take, so you better be careful because I'm the instructor. I got the power of the grade. <laughs> so they said, <laughs> I do, I do, I do. I said, next, next meeting I'm going to show you that you're being lied to. And sure enough, I worked it out. I showed them, I, this was in Oregon, I, your, your home state. I sunk the rest of the world and moved at that time four billion people into Oregon. Mm-hmm. Well, that means we're going to stand on each other's heads at 75 people tall, right? No. A family of four would have a piece of land 50 by 53 in the little state of Oregon. Uh-huh. What population explosion? And boy, I got them. <laughs> they they <laughs> said, God, they took that out of their classes with their fellow students. Who said that? My teacher. In this class, they were consumer economics. So I had people coming in there, brother classes, they didn't care. <laughs> I had 17 <laughs> people the first time, but I was teaching at the end of it, over 30 people by morning. They, they'd never heard this stuff before. Just like this, they don't know what this is. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You give your, your listeners a chance to uh, pay attention, and I think you'll just stick with me. We're going to do two, two DVDs today. Uh, David will work it out so they're both connected, I guess one after the other. Uh, right. He might, but anyway, please sit down and watch it, and even if you want, make notes. Because, and then both of these are available if you want. You're given permission to make copies if you want, or you can buy them from me. Just get in touch with my website. And uh, in fact, if you don't mind, David, can I give that real quick? Oh, please. It's Forbes yours. It's just WWF, of course, everyone's WWF. Ralph, R-A-L-P-H, <laughs> dash, Epperson, E-P-P, as in Peter, E-P-P, E-R-S-O-N, Ralph, dash, Epperson.com. Go there and click. Even if you don't buy anything, go there and just look at the stuff. There's four books in there and 20 DVDs and a bunch of booklets just to show you how serious this problem is. Yeah. Definitely. Just browse. Even if you just browse, you're going to learn stuff. That's right. I did that when I first, you know, first met you. I went to your website and I did that, and I learned more in in a half hour than I'd learned in many years. So I had a, I called a friend of mine. I don't talk to him about, but we became friends when uh, on the Jesse James story. I won't get into the details. And I called him. And he said, Ralph. He said, Listen, let me tell you this. Uh, I have voted Democrat my entire life. My wife and I both. I voted for uh, for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And I said, welcome aboard. He said, boy, I'll tell you, I, I've never seen a guy like this. He's doing everything right. And I yeah. said, welcome aboard. I said, you're, you're right. He's only got so much, everything, everyone's against him. Even Republicans are against him. So mm-hmm. I said, just make sure you get to the polls and vote again and again. Because we got to reelect him and give him the power to take and get better, better hardcore patriotic conservative uh, senators in the Senate uh, because mm-hmm. they, those are rhinos, Republicans in name only. 
But I was really shocked that a guy would admit that he's voted Democrat his entire life, and he's almost as old as I am, and he voted Democrat until Donald Trump. He yeah. figured it out, and I said, God bless you for that. Thank you very much. Yeah. Have you, um, real quick before we, we uh, go to the other videos, have you? there's a guy named Kanye West, and I've never really cared for him very much. He's, he's an African-American guy. Yes. And uh, he's been speaking out a lot, too, about economic slavery. I've been, I've been preaching e- economic slavery for the last tw- 20 years, that, that uh, the African-Americans in this country have been kept under, under economic slavery rather than regular slavery. And, and by golly, the African-Americans are finally starting to get it. They're finally starting to realize that, no, the Democrats are not my friends. No. You know? And... and what a, what a glorious thing to see, you know? Let me, let me finish on that. He's become a Christian. Yes. Yeah, and he put on a rally or something, and the story is he converted or got 200 people in his probably all-black audience to walk forward and become Christians. Yeah. yeah. Praise God for Kanye West. He's doing the job of the, uh, of the whole Christian community. He's That's reaching right. out to blacks. Who've been lied to even in their own churches. Uh huh. That's yes. right. That's. I didn't want to talk about that, but but. Uh, you're okay. Right. No, no, that's okay. I, I brought us down that rabbit hole, so we're back up to the surface again. So anyway, folks, we're going to go ahead and uh, and end this part of the video, um, and you're going to be watching uh, the about Clinton and about uh, Government 101 henceforth from this time. So thank you, Ralph, and uh, we'll be making another video like this really soon about other subjects and. Uh, Folks, stay tuned. Thank you very much, David. Thank you. Bill Clinton's conspiracy, an examination of the evidence that Bill Clinton is a supporter of an international conspiracy out to control the world. My name is Ralph Epperson, and I will be the one presenting this material today. For the sake of any dated material on this presentation, it was recorded on April the 18th, 2009. First of all, let me say that this is a PowerPoint presentation and that this computer program will not allow me to speak while I am changing slides. It might sound a little disjointed, but that is just the way this program works. I want to thank you for watching this DVD And I can almost guarantee you that if you are open and listen, this information will change the way you look at history and politics in not only America, but in the world. So let me tell you in one sentence what I'll be exploring during this presentation. There is a conspiracy at work in the United States and the world itself, and Bill Clinton is a supporter of it. I think a good place to start would be to discuss a little of my personal background and why I wanted to offer you this information. I am a graduate of the University of Arizona, and I thought that meant that I had been educated. I joined the Young Republicans when I moved to Los Angeles after I graduated and was told by another young college graduate that I needed to read what he called revisionist history, the theory that history, as we have been taught in our public schools, needed to be revised. 
I had to admit that I didn't know what that meant, and he suggested that I start reading, and I did, as he suggested. As I read, I was being exposed to a competing school of thought other than the one I had been exposed to in my public schools. And for the first time in my life, I started to question what I had been taught. And what I had been taught is what I now call the accidental view of history. This view holds that no one knows why wars, revolutions, and depressions start. They just do. This is certainly the view that the majority of historians favor and is taught around the United States as the official story of our past. But I started seeing the evidence that the major events of our past have been intentionally caused, and I had to learn the definition of a new word. And that word was conspiracy, and it might be appropriate at this time to define it. Webster's defines the word as two or more people meeting in secret with an evil purpose. Notice that these people must meet in secret because their plans are evil, because their goals would not be accepted by the people if they were told what they were. People with good motives seek publicity, not secrecy. So what I was learning was that there was an alternative explanation to the history of the world. And that other explanation is what I call the conspiratorial view of history. And it holds that the events of the past have been planned years in advance by a central worldwide conspiracy. So it is the task of those like myself who have found the evidence of what kind of future they have in store for us to make it public, and that is what I've dedicated my life to for over 40 years. So I publish materials that will hopefully inform those who want to know why great events occur. I've written four books and 11 booklets on individual subjects of interest and produced a total of five DVDs. This is my first book, and it is intended to provide the evidence that a conspiracy has been planning the major events of this nation years in advance. It is called The Unseen Hand, and I have subtitled it An Introduction to the Conspiratorial View of History. One of the great evidences that I am right comes from a very unlikely source, but one who should be recognized by all but a few, and that individual is former President Bill Clinton, because Bill Clinton told America on a live national broadcast that there was a conspiracy and that he had been elected president because he was a supporter of it. And to start that discussion, I would like to show you a book that the former president and vice president Al Gore wrote in 1992 entitled Putting People First. And on page 217 of this book, 
Bill Clinton provided us with a transcript of his acceptance speech he delivered on the night of July the 16th, 1992, when he accepted the nomination as President of the United States. And on page 231, this is what he said. As a teenager, I heard John Kennedy's summons to citizenship. And then as a student at Georgetown University, I heard that call clarified by a professor I had named Carol Quigley. We now have to go back a few years to the summer of 1963 when Bill Clinton was selected to participate in a thing called Boys Nation held each year in Washington, D.C., to expose some of next year's senior high school students to life in the political arena. This is a picture of young Bill Clinton shaking the hand of President John Kennedy in the Rose Garden of the White House when they met during that conference. This picture had to be taken during the summer of 1963 because, as you know, President Kennedy was assassinated in November of that year. As you will recall, Bill Clinton was elected President of the United States in 1992. And to acknowledge his defeat of President George Bush, Time Magazine named Bill Clinton Man of the Year of 1993. By the way, <laughs> please notice what they did when they placed Bill, Bill Clinton's picture in front of the M letter in the word time. They strategically placed his portrait directly in front of the letter M, making the two upward points of that letter appear as if the president had horns. Were they trying to tell us something? But in truth, Time Magazine should have named these two men as men of the year, President John Kennedy, and Professor Kel Quigley, the two men who made Bill Clinton president of the United States. Just so you know, I want to apologize to Time Magazine. I took one of their covers and cut out its picture and made this cover myself. I don't want to get sued by them for claiming that they made a cover when they didn't. Let me now discuss how these two men made Bill Clinton president of the United States. Bill graduated from high school in 1964, and he went to Georgetown University near Washington, D.C., and graduated in 1968. Let me show you some of what Dr. Quigley taught young Bill Clinton while he was at Georgetown. Dr. Quigley wrote the book entitled Tragedy and Hope in 1966 when Bill Clinton was a student there. Notice that it was published in about the middle of Mr. Clinton's four years there. Bill Clinton attended Georgetown between years 1964 and 1968, and Tragedy and Hope was published in 1966. This is a photocopy of the Georgetown Alumnus Magazine for the winter of 1993, meaning 25 years after Bill Clinton graduated. It says that Tragedy and Hope was required reading for Quigley's course. 
And since Professor Quigley was the head of the department that Bill Clinton majored in, that means that Bill Clinton read this book while he was at Georgetown, and we can now read what Bill read. The inside desk cover of the book says that Dr. Quigley was the professor of history at the Foreign Service School at Georgetown University and that he formerly taught at Princeton and Harvard. He received his Ph.D. from Harvard as well. Let's now see what Dr. Quigley taught young Bill Clinton. This is taken from page 950 of Tragedy and Hope. There does exist and has existed for a generation, meaning back to around 1920, an international Anglophile network which operates. Uh, by the way, the word Anglophile means that this network was primarily English. But notice that Dr. Quigley says it is also international, meaning that foreigners could join as well. So this network operated to some extent, in the way the radical right, and by the way, that means people like me who research their activities, believe believes the Communist Act. In fact, this network has no aversion to cooperating with the communists or any other group and frequently does so. I know of the operations of this network because I studied it for 20 years, meaning back to just after World War II, and was permitted for two years in the early 1960s to examine its papers and secret records. And now listen to this incredible confession. Dr. Quigley said, I have no aversion to it or most of its instruments. But in general, my chief difference of opinion is that it wishes to remain unknown. And I believe its role in history is significant enough to be known. This is an absolutely staggering statement. And to understand why, I have to go back to World War I this war was fought between the years of 1914 and 1918. And the plan was to involve a lot of nations in the wars to convince the people of the world that nations cause wars and that a world government should be created that would ultimately abolish national sovereignty. This war murdered 16 million people. That's 16 million people. 16 million. The picture in the background is of a World War I cemetery in France. The League of Nations was created for that purpose, but the Senate of the United States refused to ratify the treaty. So in 1920, the Council on Foreign Relations was created to slowly convince the American people that we needed a world government to ultimately abolish nationalism. 
In other words, if we did not have nations, we would not have wars. And to accomplish that goal, this conspiracy planned World War II, which started in 1941, but was planned as early as 1920. Once again, the plan was to involve many nations to further convince the people of the world that nations cause wars. And if we didn't have nations, we wouldn't need or wouldn't have wars. And this war murdered 53 million people. 53 million people. 53 million. The picture in the background is of a World War II cemetery in France where 14,000 American soldiers are buried. That's 14,000 American soldiers, 14,000. All because this network had a goal for the world to create the United Nations. To, to ultimately create a world government, to abolish national sovereignty. And Dr. Quigley has no aversion to what this conspiracy did. And notice that if Bill Clinton did not rebuke the views of Dr. Quigley during his acceptance speech, as he did not, that means that Bill Clinton also has no aversion to the murder of 53 million people to give the world the United Nations. That shows you just how evil this conspiracy is. And this quote comes from page 324 of Tragedy and Hope. The powers of financial capitalism had another far-reaching aim, nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands, able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. This system was to be controlled by the central banks of the world, by the central banks of the world, and just so you know, America has a central bank. It is called the Federal Reserve, but it is not federal. It's privately owned. So these central banks act in concert by secret agreements arrived at in frequent meetings and conferences. Notice here that this network arranged for the meetings of these banks to be in secret so that the public would not know what their plans were. It now becomes appropriate to introduce you to Cecil Rhodes, one of the many people that Dr. Quigley identified as being one of these conspirators. Quigley says Mr. Rhodes feverishly exploited the diamond and gold fields of South Africa. 
and rose to be Prime Minister of Cape Colony from 1890 to 1896. In fact, the African nation of Rhodesia was named after Cecil Rhodes. That nation is now called Zimbabwe. Dr. Quigley continues, in the middle 1890s, Rhodes had a personal income of $5 million, which was spent freely for his mysterious purposes. These purposes centered on his desire to bring all the habitable portions of the world under their control. For this purpose, Rhodes left part of his great fortune to found the Rhodes Scholarships at Oxford. It was the intention of Mr. Rhodes to bring intelligent young people to Oxford to teach them of the existence of this network and then induce them to join in support of it. So where did young Bill Clinton go after graduation from Georgetown in 1968? This is page 36 of the U.S. News and World Report article for October the 19th, 1992. And it shows that from 1968 to 1970, Bill Clinton was at Oxford studying as a Rhodes Scholar. This is a picture of Mr. Clinton and Hillary taken in 1970, shortly after he returned from England after completing his studies at Oxford. You can see that Mr. Clinton was taught that his long hair and beard would be a way of showing his contempt for the traditional clean-shaven appearance of modern-day civilization. Even Hillary was caught up in this manner of showing contempt. Dr. Quigley then explained on page 582 what the Rhodes Scholarship Organization did in America. They set up a Council on Foreign Relations in New York. And then on page 950, Quigley taught Clinton the American branch of this organization has played a very significant role in the history of the United States. So in 1988, several years after he returned to America, Bill Clinton joined the Council on Foreign Relations. And then in 1992, the Council on Foreign Relations delivered the election to President Bill Clinton. Yes, Bill Clinton learned his lessons well. It seems reasonable to presume that Mr. Clinton would agree with this statement made in the biography of Cecil Rhodes written by Sarah Gertrude Millen. The government of the world was Rhodes' simple desire. And the Arizona Daily Star of March the 6th, 1993, acknowledged that President Clinton had learned his lessons well. He reported that Oxford had awarded him an honorary doctorate of civil law. You do a good job for the conspiracy, and they reward you.
There is one more gentleman who was influential in the early career of Bill Clinton, and he might have been the one who truly set him on the course of becoming the future president of the United States. And that individual was Senator William Fulbright, the Democrat senator from Arkansas, the home state of Bill Clinton. When the senator died at the age of 89 in February of 1995, the Associated Press article that reported on the story stated that Bill Clinton worked as a clerk in Senator Fulbright's office while a student at Georgetown University. Clinton said, if it weren't for Fulbright, I don't think I'd be here today. And the senator could have been the one urging him early on in his life to go to Georgetown University to become the student of Dr. Carol Quigley and then to attend Oxford on a Rhodes Scholarship, ultimately to join the Council on Foreign Relations. Because it is no coincidence that Senator Fulbright was both a Rhodes Scholar and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. And the last quote from Tragedy and Hope I would like to bring to your attention is this one found on page 73. The business interests expected to control both political parties equally. So here Dr. Quigley taught Bill Clinton that both the Democrat and Republican parties were controlled by the same people. And we the people think we change things when we elect the candidates from one party as a way of protesting the record of the other party while in office. Dr. Quigley continued, Indeed, some of them intended to contribute to both and allow an alternation of the two parties in public office. That means that these powerful men would allow the Democrats to be in office for eight years, and then they would rig it so that the Republicans would be in office for eight years, pretty much as it has been since the 1920s when the Council on Foreign Relations was created. Now let me continue with Quigley's answer to the question, why do they want to alternate the party in power? Quigley continued, in order to conceal their own influence, inhibit any ex uh, exhibition of independence by politicians, and allow the electorate, that's us, to believe they, meaning us, were exercising their, meaning us, our own free choice. See, uh, we, uh, we, we, we dummies are too stupid to figure it out, so they get away with it. We think that we change things when we elect the other party after the first one had ruled for eight years. And they continue to get away with it. And to show you that the statement that both parties are controlled by the same people is true, let me show you the evidence that President George Bush, the father, intentionally threw the election in 1992 to Bill Clinton. 
There is a universal rule in politics, whether you are running for dog catcher of Tucson, <laughs> as I did in 1996. Uh, this is, of course, one of my lawn signs when I ran in 1996 for dog catcher here in Tucson, where I live. I, I, I didn't win, but I don't think my campaign slogan of vote early and often had anything to do <laughs> with my defeat. But to get back to my point, this rule applies to candidates from dog catcher to president. And that universal rule is never, never, never promise a tax increase. You can talk about increasing benefits or adding new bureaus, but you must never, never, never tell the electorate that you will increase taxes to pay for your new benefits or new bureaus. But you as a successful candidate know that you can make the promise while you are running and then raise taxes after you are elected because the American people have a short memory. Now to show you that George Bush knew the rule, during his presidency, he coined a very catchy phrase, read my lips, no new taxes. This was repeated so often that it became a joke amongst comedians, but the intent was to make it well known among the American people. So what happened next? George Bush raised taxes in 1990, two years before the election. And George Bush lost the election of 1992. Because George Bush was told to intentionally lose the election by the people who control both political parties. By the way, there was a precedent for Mr. Bush's rather dramatic action. Walter Mondale, the Democrat candidate for president in 1984 against Ronald Reagan, the Republican candidate, did the same thing. On the night of the Democrat National Convention, on July the 19th, 1984, when Mr. Mondale accepted the nomination for the presidency from the Democrat Party, Mr. Mondale broke the no taxes rule with these words. Let's tell the truth. My opponent will raise taxes, and so will I. He won't tell you, I just did. And to show you that the cartoonist had a field day with Mr. Mondale's statement, this cartoon appeared in U.S. News and World Report. Mondale is shown on his bandwagon under a banner which reads, I'll raise your taxes. He is shown saying through a megaphone, come one, come all, jump on, folks. Hey, 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 everybody. And there is no one, no one around jumping on his bandwagon. And the second cartoon shows Mondale holding up what appears to be a post-election Chicago Daily Tribune newspaper with the headline reading, Mondale defeats Mondale, apparently referring to his Democrat convention speech in which he promised 
a tax increase. And as could be predicted by anyone who knew the rule, Mondale lost the election of 1984 intentionally. And yes, ladies and gentlemen, Walter Mondale was also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Notice that both the Republican and Democrat presidential candidate was asked to throw the his election, his election. And both of them did by breaking the no taxes rule. So this is evidence that both political parties are controlled by the same people. That means that the conspiracy wanted Bill Clinton in office. He had followed the yellow brick road and a conspiracy made him president of the United States. Now let me point out that to Dr. Quigley's credit, he did experience a slight change of heart about his support of this conspiracy. Four years after his death in 1977, Dr. Quigley's new book was published. It was entitled The Anglo-American Establishment. First of all, please notice that the flag of the United States shown on the dust cover of the book is upside down. This is a universal distress sign that a nation is in trouble. So the implication of the publishers is that the United States was in trouble, apparently because of this international network. And this is part of the evidence that Dr. Quigley had some reservations about what he discovered about the power of this network. This paragraph underneath this picture on the back cover of the book says these are the words of Professor Quigley before he passed away. No country that values its safety should allow what this network accomplished. That a small number of men would be able to wield such power in administration and politics should be given almost complete control over the publication of documents relating to their actions should be able to exercise such influence over the avenues of information that create public opinion and should be able to monopolize so completely the writing and the teaching of the history of their own period. Welcome aboard, Dr. Quigley. Dr. Quigley went on. It is not easy for an outsider to write this history of a secret group of this kind, but it should be done. For this group is one of the most important historical facts of the 20th century. But agreeing with the group on goals, I cannot agree with them on methods. In this group were persons 
whose lives have been a disaster to our way of life. Unfortunately, their influence has been strong, and thus ends the story of Dr. Carol Quigley. If Dr. Quigley was alive today and I could talk to him, I would say, if only you had said this before this international network you so strongly supported and had no aversion to murdered 53 million people in World War II, they might still be alive today. But I must be fair to Dr. Quigley. At least he figured it out and tried to correct his early support of this international network. He deserves the praise of freedom-loving people all over the world. But his attempt to clear the air poses a real problem for Bill Clinton. He also said that he had no aversion to this conspiracy. And while Dr. Quigley finally objected to its evil methods of wars, depressions, and revolutions, during Clinton's entire eight-year administration, he did not renounce the methods of this network. In fact, he appointed hundreds of their members, fellow members of the Council on Foreign Relations, to positions inside his administration. I would now like to read a short list of his key appointments right after he became president in 1993. Each of these men and women were members of the Council on Foreign Relations, the organization created by the Rhodes Network. I will not indicate which position he appointed them to, but will just list their names. And as I read these names, please remember that President Clinton's hero, Dr. Quigley, said that these people had been a disaster to our way of life. Warren Christopher, Clifford R. Wharton, James Woolsey, Anthony Lake, Samuel Berger, Les Aspen, William J. Crow, Madeline Albright, Lloyd Benson, Roger Altman, Donna Shalala, Alice Rivlin, Henry Cisneros, Laura Tyson, Bruce Babbitt, but Bill Clinton appointed them anyway, even after Dr. Quigley made the statement that they were a disaster to our way of life. And let me not forget to mention the name of one more individual who has been a disaster to our way of life, Bill Clinton. You will recall that Dr. Quigley wrote the Anglo-American establishment in 1981, and Bill Clinton did not become president until 1993, obviously 12 years later. He certainly could have read this book just like he read Dr. Quigley's first book, Tragedy and Hope. And ever since he has been out of office, he has done nothing to expose this conspiracy.
Bill Clinton was encouraged to learn about this conspiracy. Bill Clinton went to Georgetown to be taught about this conspiracy. Bill Clinton then went to Oxford to learn more about this conspiracy. Bill Clinton joined the Council on Foreign Relations to become a part of this conspiracy. And Bill Clinton was made president of the United States because he had no aversion to this conspiracy. And then Bill Clinton did nothing to expose it nor stop it in its plans for America. This is the legacy of Bill Clinton's presidency. Men of decent morality will always regret that he did not have the conviction to expose them and their evil deeds. Yes, this conspiracy has truly become Bill Clinton's conspiracy. Now, I would like to end with an answer to the question, what is it these conspirators want? And the best way I know how to answer that question is by quoting from this book by Alvin Toffler entitled The Third Wave. Mr. Toffler is described as being one of the world's best-known social thinkers. It also says that his books are read in more than 50 countries, which means that his ideas are being considered worldwide. This book was published in 1980, and as you can see by the line shown in the red triangle, red rectangle rather, this book is the classic study of tomorrow. So if everyone wants to know what the world is being taught about the future that these conspirators want, this is the book to read. But let me make this clear. Mr. Toffler is in agreement with these changes while I am in total opposition. I would like to quote from this book because I consider his comments to be the easiest way to understand what our future is. These are his thoughts. The proverbial man in the street says the world has gone mad. While the expert points to all the trends leading towards catastrophe, this book offers a sharply different view. It contends that the world has not swerved into lunacy and that beneath the seemingly senseless events, there lies a startling and potentially hopeful pattern. Many of today's changes are not independent of one another, nor are they random. For example, the global energy crisis may seem like an isolated event, but it is, in fact, a part of a much larger phenomenon. The death of industrialization and the rise of a new civilization. A new civilization is emerging in our lives and blind men everywhere are trying to suppress it. Now here he is 
writing about me and the others like me, those in opposition. This new civilization brings with it new family styles, meaning single-parent families, homosexual and lesbian families raising children, etc. Changed ways of working, the loss of industrial jobs to foreign nations, women working in the workforce instead of being at home tending for the children. Changed ways of loving and living. Homosexuality and lesbianism are being taught as alternative lifestyles by our public schools. And a new economy, the destruction of the free enterprise system. And lastly, new political conflicts. Communism is no longer our enemy. Radical Islam is. And then he repeats his claim that everything that is happening around us is happening by design. This book is based upon the assumption that the jolting changes we are now experiencing are not chaotic or random, but that, in fact, they form a sharp, clearly discernible pattern. When we understand this, many seemingly, seemingly senseless events become suddenly comprehensible. So there you have it, my fellow Americans, our future as being planned by this conspiracy unless we prevent it. Yes, I submit to you, the viewer, that Bill Clinton's conspiracy is real. So let me conclude with this last thought. Now you know that our future is not something we would choose if we had a choice. I am hopeful that you will learn more about this conspiracy and have the conviction to further expose it. Thank you for your interest, and may God bless America. Government 101, an examination of the function of government. A presentation of Publius Productions. My name is Ralph Epperson, and I will be the one discussing government on this DVD. Just to set the record, this presentation was narrated on the 27th of August, 2009. I want to thank you for watching this, as I know that you have other entertainment options. But this should be a very enlightening DVD, because it might be the first time that you ever looked into the function of government. It might help you know a little about me and why I wanted to make this DVD. I am a graduate of the University of Arizona, but the material I will be examining has been gleaned from over 40 years of research into politics, history, and economics since graduation. 
This subject was not taught to me as I went through high school and college, and now I wonder why that was. And I think I have an answer, and that is why I felt that I had to produce this DVD for the sake of others who have not been taught about the functions and purposes of government. I started reading material on government back in 1962 after I graduated from college and joined the Young Republicans. And as I read, I learned a great deal about political systems and about the purpose of government. One of the first books I read was entitled The Law, written in 1850 by Frederick Bastiat, a French economist, statesman, and author. It was really eye-opening and made me question much of what I had learned, or better yet, what I had not learned at the University of Arizona before I graduated. This book is easily the best book that I have ever read on the reasons men create governments. After I read it, I started asking political candidates one simple question whenever one of them asked me for my vote. I would explain that I would ask them this one question. And by their answer, I could tell if I could trust them with the power of government. And if they did not know the answer, I would say that I simply could not trust them and that they would not get my vote. Every candidate I talked to asked me to ask them the question. And that question was, what is the function of government? And I'm here to tell you that of the 30 to 40 candidates I've asked this question of, only one, a state senator from Arizona, correctly identified the function of government. So today, I'm going to answer that question here during this DVD. What is the function of government? And I think it needs to be explained that I will be speaking very simply as I explain what a proper answer should be. Because I believe that it is very important that we all learn just what the function is so that we can all cast intelligent votes every time there is an election. Now let me start by examining man and his relationship to government. As we will read in a few moments, our founding fathers felt there were what they called self-evident truths. Things that were true and were not debatable. In other words, they were simply true because they were simply true. And one of those self-evident truths was this one. Each man has rights. And please understand that I'm using the generic term man to include both men and women. All of humanity, both male and female, have rights. Now, the next question is, what is the source of those rights? And there are only two, God or government. Thomas Jefferson, one of this nation's founding fathers, and later the third president of the United States, wrote this, the God who gave us life gave us liberty. Can the liberties of a nation be secure when we have removed the conviction that these liberties are the gift of God? 
and that thought contains a key distinction. And I would like to define two words, freedom and liberty. Freedom is the right to act morally without asking for permission, as long as it does not hinder or endanger the rights of others. You have no doubt heard that your right to swing your arm ends with my nose. A person in a state of freedom acts responsibly so as not to harm his neighbor and is based upon what has been called the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That means if you do not want anyone to commit an act of violence against you, then you should not commit an act of violence against someone else. As you have just heard, Thomas Jefferson said that God gave us our liberty. But let me define that word. It is defined as unrestrained freedom, meaning I have the right to swing my arm even if it does hit your nose. Liberty is total freedom without any constrictions on your actions. In the animal world, this liberty is defined as license. Animals act according to instinct without any concern about whether they are acting morally. The medium animal consumes the smaller animal and the biggest consumes the medium one. And this is called the law of the jungle. In a civilized society, man has been taught to act so as not to harm the rights of others. And he is punished if he goes beyond that restraint. Civilized men build courts and then jails as prisoners and prisons, rather, to punish those who harm others. I'm laughing because I painted this picture of a jail for reasons you will learn <laughs> in a few minutes. Uh, not too bad for a student of an art school for 12, <laughs> 12 years. Now, let's examine what Thomas Jefferson said to see if he really meant what he said. He wrote that God, who gave us life, gave us liberty. Let's see if this is what he really meant. The God who gave us life gave us unrestrained freedom. And you would be correct if you presume that he did mean exactly that. In other words, he knew precisely what he was saying. He should have said, the God who gave us life gave us freedom because it is a just God who teaches us to act responsibly by teaching us what is right and wrong. So we must be accurate in our choice of words. There is a major difference between liberty and freedom. Did Thomas Jefferson want to live in a society that allowed each man to decide for himself what was right and wrong? The reason that any thinking individual would not want to is obvious. No man would have the right to private property if the rest of society decided they had the right to take whatever they wanted. But Jefferson believed in a God who teaches that each man 
should decide for himself what was right and wrong. Therefore, he believed that this God gave man the liberty to have unrestrained freedom, meaning each man should decide for himself what was right and wrong. And I want to make it clear, Jefferson's God was not the God of the Bible. Because that God taught man to be responsibly free, which means not to harm your neighbor. Thomas Jefferson was not the only person talking about liberty. This is the Statue of Unrestrained Freedom, <laughs> called the Statue of Liberty, in New York Harbor. It was built by Frederick Bartholdi, a Frenchman, and given to the United States in 1886 to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Now let me return to an examination of the function of government. William Penn, the founder of the state of Pennsylvania, wrote, If men will not be governed by God, they will be governed by tyrants. So we have a choice. We can either be governed by the moral teachings of God, or we will be governed by tyrants, those who will rule by force and deny us our unalienable rights. But perhaps the greatest short explanation of man and his government is from the Declaration of Independence written in the year 1776. This is how they worded it. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure, meaning to protect these rights, governments are instituted among men. So here is stated the only function of government, to secure man's God-given rights. But notice, just as in the case of Thomas Jefferson, the Declaration of Independence said that we have been given the right of liberty and not freedom. And there it is in the green square off to the right side of this slide. So it wasn't just Jefferson who had misstated a self-evident truth. It was the man who wrote the Declaration of Independence itself. So Jefferson was simply expressing the thought of the day. The thought that God gave us unrestrained freedom, defined as our liberty, to do whatever each of us think is right and wrong. But there is one self-evident truth in that statement, because it clearly states that there is only one function of government to secure our rights. And that all else the government does is defined as tyranny. And tyranny is defined as total government with no concern for human rights. And governing 
without consent is tyranny. Now let me summarize what we have just discussed because this is the essence of government. The question is, what is the only function of government? And the correct answer is to secure God-given rights. All else is tyranny. I would now like to discuss the definition of the two words, unalienable rights. This is a close-up of the upper left-hand portion of the Declaration of Independence. The words at the top are from the opening sentence of the Declaration, which reads, the Unanimous Declaration of the 13 United States of America. And this is the part of the Declaration that speaks about unalienable rights. The sentence reads that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights that amongst them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now let me define the two words, unalienable rights. Webster's defines the words as incapable of being surrendered, which means that we can give our rights away, but that no one can take them. We cannot be forced to surrender them. We surely recognize that men do take away the rights of others by murdering them or by stealing their property. But we acknowledge that they do not have the right to commit those acts. Therefore, with this understanding of man's rights, only the grantor can take them away. That means that if God is the source of our rights, only God can take them away. And God has chosen not to do so. So no man, no group of men, no majority, no minority, no government, no other nation has the right to take away our rights. Simply stated, no one has the right to take away our unalienable rights. Man can give them away if that is what he freely chooses, but they are his to keep, and only the grantor can take them away. But there is another position, and that is that man gives us our rights. Let me now examine that. There are those who claim that man creates government to provide us with our rights. And I would like to repeat once again that only the grantor of those rights can take them away. So if the government grants us our rights, the government can take them away. Let me illustrate that in writing. This is the International Covenant on Human Rights passed in 1966 by the unanimous consent of the members of the United Nations, which means that our representative in the United Nations voted for this document. And this is what our government agreed to. The states party to the present covenant recognize that in the enjoyment of those rights provided by the state, the state may subject such rights only to 
such limitations as are determined by law. So here we see that your rights are provided by the state and that the state may take them away as determined by law. That means your rights are not unalienable at all. They may be taken away by government as long as they pass the law, giving them permission to do so. Now, let me define the two words right and privilege. A right is the freedom to act morally without asking permission. A privilege is the freedom to act morally, but only after permission has been granted by some governmental agency. There are three basic rights, life, freedom, but not liberty, and property. I would now like to state a simple evident truth. All men are created hungry. That means that we all need to eat, and that means that we need property to survive. It follows then that if you take my property from me, I will surely starve to death. Now, you might recall that during the days of the Old West, a horse thief was punished for stealing a man's horse, not because it was a wrong, it was a wrong to steal, but because a horse was vital to the man's ability to acquire the necessary sustenance for his life, and that to, to deprive a man of his horse deprived the man of his ability to travel in his search for his needed sustenance. But there is another way that man can take away our right to life. A thief can deprive me of my freedom, meaning the right to be free to produce that which I need to sustain my life. And if that thief succeeds, I will surely starve to death. I used to illustrate that lesson when I was teaching economics by telling my students that a tyrant could deprive them of their right to life not by murdering them, but by imprisoning them even in their classroom so that without their freedom, my students would surely starve to death. So now let me define once again the word freedom as a condition where man is free to exercise his unalienable rights as long as he does not harm others. So just as a review, freedom means living with a moral responsibility to not harm the rights of others. The opposite of freedom is liberty, and that is defined once again as excessive, undisciplined freedom, no restraints on action. Under a condition of total liberty, there are no rights. Man will live by permission of the strongest bully. Man has decided that there are certain acts which harm others and that those acts are wrong. So how does man decide what is right and wrong? Is there a guide for man to follow? And the answer for many centuries has been the Holy Bible. I did a search on a Bible program and discovered that the word evil is used 592 times and the word good is used 778 times. 
So the Bible is not only a book about God and his plan for earth, it is a basic primer on good and evil. And civilized man has used it as his instruction guide on how to set up a government. Did you know that each of the 50 state constitutions in the United States refers to God? For instance, let me read just two examples of the 50. The preamble to California's Constitution reads, We the people of the state of California, grateful to Almighty God for our freedom. The preamble of the Constitution of Georgia reads, We the people of Georgia, relying upon guidance of Almighty God, do ordain this Constitution. So man utilizes a moral code, a set of ethics, in regulating his conduct. The word ethics is defined as the science of moral duty or ideal human character. What this teaches us is that each of us has rights, but that we must act responsibly so that we do not injure the rights of others. This little visual might help you understand this principle. You have the right to go from left to right, and I have the right to go from the bottom to the top. And if we both get to the red square at the same time and decide to both go, there will be a collision. So a reasonable and prudent man decides to install a stoplight to regulate who goes first and who waits for a few seconds. This is a reasonable position although one party has to give up his freedom to move without hindrance for a short time. The thinking is that by giving up one's rights to travel without hindrance for a few short seconds, both parties will be better off than if they both moved at the same time. So the concept is some concessions about rights have to be made so that all parties can have a better chance of exercising their individual rights. Now, the most important right of life, right to life, the most important right to life is the right to self-defense. Each man has the right to protect his right to life, and all men have this right equally. So all men have the right to join together to hire a bodyguard called government to protect their individual rights to life. Each man also has the right to protect his property because without property, the man will have no right to his life. His right to survive will be taken by the bully and he will starve to death. James Madison, the father of the Constitution, wrote, that is not a just government where property is violated by seizures of one class of citizens for the service of the rest. The Virginia Bill of Rights, written in May of 1776, before our Declaration of Independence, declared that all men are equally free and independent and have certain inherent rights with the means of acquiring and possessing property. So man has the unalienable right to life, freedom, 
but not liberty and property. But as I said, there are those who disagree. There are people in the world who want to abolish your right to private property, and they are called communists. This is Karl Marx, the so-called father of communism. He wrote the Communist Manifesto in 1848, and in it he wrote, The theory of the communists may be summed up in the single sentence, Abolition of Private Property. Marx detailed how he would use government to abolish private property. From each according to his ability, to each according to his need. Government would take from some to give to others. And this is the essence of communism. In America today, the communists are called liberals because liberals do not say it, but they work to abolish private property. <laughs> this is my favorite photograph of President Lyndon Johnson. I actually found it in an article in Life magazine. President Johnson would certainly qualify as a liberal. And as proof, let me offer this quote from a speech he delivered that was entered into the congressional record on January the 15th, 1964. We are going to try to take all of the money that we think is unnecessarily being spent and take it from the haves and give it to the have-nots who need it so much. Now, if you analyze those two statements of Marx and Johnson, you will find that the thought is identical. The government is going to take the property of one to give it to another by force. It was Lyndon Johnson who gave America a government program called welfare. And what is welfare but a government program to take property from one to give it to another by force? This is the upper right-hand portion of the Declaration of Independence. And this is the right-hand side of a longer sentence that I want to discuss. It reads, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just. And this is the continuation of that sentence on the upper left-hand side of the same declaration. And the continuation reads, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. When was the last time you gave your consent to government by your vote in favor of welfare? What do you think would happen if Congress asked all of the American people to vote for welfare at the ballot box? My guess is that it would be turned down by an overwhelming majority. Yet the Declaration of Independence states that government cannot govern without the consent of the people. But welfare has been a part of American life for about 40 years, and we the people 
have never given our direct consent to a program that takes from one to give to another by force. This is something to think about. America just elected a new president in 2008 named Barack Obama. During his discussion that he had with Joe the Plumber in October of 2008 about increasing the taxes on those who earn over $250,000 to give tax credits to those who earn less than that, candidate Obama said, when you spread the wealth around, it is good for everybody. <laughs> he failed to say that it is good for everybody except those who are forced to pay the extra taxes. So Obama was agreeing with Karl Marx, the communist who wrote from each according to his ability to each according to his need. The wealthy have the ability and the poor have the need. So Obama wants to take from the rich to give to the poor by force. I've sent the president a memo that reads, many of the very wealthy already have a way to avoid paying income taxes called tax-free foundations. That means you won't be able to take their property even by force. However, there is something that you can do. Go on national television and explain to the American people that some of the very wealthy are avoiding their fair share of the income tax burden and that you are urging the people to write to their congressmen to abolish tax-free foundations then you will have access to all of the funds of the wealthy. Uh, by, by, by the way, President Obama, just so you will know, these tax-free foundations were set up before the income tax was created. That might be a clue as to whether or not you will succeed in abolishing these foundations. Uh, just between you and me, to be honest, President Obama, I don't think you will. It is a pity that Senator Teddy Kennedy didn't dissolve his tax-free foundation before he passed away. He could have done so as an example to others to encourage them to do so as well. He could have seen just how unfair it was for him to not pay the taxes, he voted on us. He could have, but he didn't. And I wonder why. This is a little article that appeared in my local newspaper in November of 2008. It reported that someone in New York agreed with Obama who said, quote, when you spread the wealth around, it is good for everybody, end quote. This man obtained a list of the 400 wealthiest Americans and ran some sort of Internet ring that dipped into the bank account of these wealthy Americans. 
Your uncle reported that he stole more than $1 million before he was caught. He was tried, found guilty, and was sentenced to jail. Now here is the question. Here are two men doing exactly the same thing, stealing property without permission. And one goes to jail and the other one doesn't. If stealing the property of the rich is against the law and requires a jail sentence, why isn't Obama going to jail as well? <laughs> this is the United States where presidents can steal legally. While I am here, I would like to discuss the great champion of stealing from the rich to give to the poor. We have been told that Robin Hood stole from the rich to give to the poor. This is, of course, Errol Flynn in the title role of that movie by that name. I will ask the question, who were the rich people Robin Hood was stealing from? I have watched the classic Robin Hood movie starring Errol Flynn many times, and the only person that Robin stole from was the King of England and his tax collector, the Sheriff of Nottingham. Robin was not stealing from the rich. He was taking back that which had been stolen from the people by the king who was using the power of government to confiscate their wealth in the form of excessive taxation collected by the Sheriff of Nottingham and his minions. Taking back that which has been stolen is not stealing. It is getting your property back, and each of us has the right to ask the police to return the stolen property after they arrest the thief. And Robin Hood was not stealing from the rich when he returned the property of the poor taken by government. So we now can include this convicted criminal in with the other three thieves. What is the difference between any of these men? They all wanted to take the property of the rich and give it to the poor. And the observer has to conclude that three of these men wanted to use government to steal property without permission, meaning by force. And none of the four felt that stealing was wrong. Now let me discuss where this idea of the rich having lots of money stored somewhere and that they do not want to share it with the poor. There are two good examples from the past. This is Walt Disney's cartoon character named Scrooge McDuck in his vault skiing, skiing down a huge hill of coin money. He also has a money tree from which all he has to do is pull the money off as one would do with the leaves off of a tree. His nephews are shown playing in his vault as well. And the second example is Jack Benny, a comedian who enjoyed a long run of many years from 1932 to 1965 on radio and later on television. 
he was depicted as being very tight with his money and that he kept large quantities of it in a vault in the basement of his home. Now, both of these stories are based upon a false presumption. The wealthy do not store their money in vaults. They invest it, and when they do, they create jobs. Notice the poor do not have the money to invest in factories. Only the wealthy do. And if they kept their money in vaults, people would not get jobs. So we the people have been fed a lie by Walt Disney and Jack Benny. The rich put their money to use for the benefit of those who seek employment. So now, once again, what is the function of government? To secure God-given rights. That is the only legitimate function of government, and all else is tyranny. So man creates government to protect his unalienable rights to life, freedom, and not liberty, and property. He creates government to protect himself from thieves, murderers, and from the government. But there are risks in creating government. I would like to quote George Washington, this nation's first president. But before I do, I would like to show you this portrait of President Washington alongside the picture of Cromarks that I showed you before. Do you notice anything common to both of these portraits. Please notice that each is shown doing a very strange thing with their right hands inside their coat. I will not spend time now to explain what this means. So if you would like to know, please watch my three-hour DVD entitled America's Secret Destiny because this sign is examined in more detail. And I want you to know that understanding what this sign means will materially assist you in understanding just what America's secret destiny is. President Washington, this nation's first president, wrote, Government is not reason. It is not eloquence. It is force. And like fire, it is a dangerous servant and a fearful master. Washington was certainly right. Government can destroy just like fire, meaning it can be a fearful master, but it can also be a beneficial servant. I have a fire burning in my home right now, and I want that fire to burn there. It is the pilot light to my gas furnace. I protect my home from being burned to the ground by building a wall around the fire called a furnace wall to keep it within its proper environment. Fire can be a beneficial servant. I use it to heat my home. I create government to also be a beneficial servant. And I protect myself from its ability to destroy me by building a wall around it called the Constitution.
The purpose of the Constitution is to keep government in check, to not allow it to get outside of its bounds and destroy the nation. There are actually people who do not want this nation to have a constitutional republic. This is why lawyers are not taught constitutional law. That is why our students are not taught what their rights are and how the Constitution protects them. The liberals in today's society want government to provide housing, recreation, medical care, and education and food. But there is already a governmental agency providing all of these services. It is called a prison. Yet the liberals are not running to become a prisoner, receiving all of these governmental benefits because they know there are two classes of people in a prison. Those who receive the benefits, and they are called prisoners, and those who dispense the benefits called guards or wardens. And those receiving all of those benefits are not free to provide them for themselves. What they want is for all of us, including them, to become prisoners without guards. So now that we know we need to create government, the question becomes, what sort of government do we create? We shall start by defining various forms of government we cannot or should not create. Rule by no one is called anarchy, but this form of no government is not really a viable option since we've already decided that we need government to secure our God-given unalienable rights. And in fact, anarchy is only a transitional form of government, meaning a step between one form and another. The best example I can come up with is the one used by Adolf Hitler in Germany prior to World War II. Hitler created the brown shirts who were instructed to go out into the streets and create a condition of lawlessness in the streets called anarchy. When the people decided they had had enough, Hitler showed up and promised the Germans he would end the anarchy if they would vote him into office, or at least approve his acceptance of the Chancellor of Germany. And Hitler was appointed Chancellor in 1933, and he ended the anarchy by calling in the brown shirts that he had created. He was called a genius, a powerful leader who did as he promised. Of course, he could do as he promised. He was the one who created the anarchists. And after he was in office, he created a socialist state. He understood the plan and created anarchy as a transitional form of government. There is another form of government wherein God rules directly, and it is called a theocracy. Man cannot create a theocracy. If God does not want to create one, we cannot get him to do so. And if man wants him to create a theocracy, and God does not, he will not create one. So this is not an option when we discuss the forms of government that we can create. So let me discuss forms of government that man can create.
The first one is where one man rules and his decisions are law, and that form is called a dictatorship or an absolute monarchy. But every dictatorship, every monarchy, is always ruled by a clique around the ruler, and it is them that rule. I do not think there has ever been a true monarchy or dictatorship. Perhaps in a small Indian tribe where the chief rules by himself, but that is rather rare. Even Indian tribes are frequently run by a council of men. Another option is to create a government where the majority of the people rule, and this is called a democracy. But others have warned us about this form of government in the past. The 1928 United States Army Training Manual defined a democracy as a government of the masses, authority derived through mass meeting. The will of the majority shall regulate. Attitude towards property is communistic, negating property rights. Results in mobocracy, which means that often a democracy can be ruled by a mob, ruled by the passion of the moment. Democracies are often controlled by a speaker who seeks to convince the democracy that they should take some action contrary to law. This person is called a demagogue. President James Madison warned us about pure democracies with these words. In all cases where a majority are united by a common interest or passion, the rights of the minority are in danger. This is a major complaint about a pure democracy. How are minority rights protected? For example, what if the majority are cannibals? In a democracy, the majority rules. And if the majority are cannibals, all that is to be decided is which meal will you become. Madison went on, democracies have ever been found incompatible with the rights to property. Perhaps the way to illustrate this thought is to ask the question, why does this society allow the will of the majority, if they do not own property, to vote a tax on the minority that does own property. School bond issues are passed on to property owners, and those who do not own property do not have to pay the tax, so they can vote positively while the property owners who vote against it have to pay it. This is not a just system, yet it happens all over this country. Let's define the word stealing once again as the taking of property without permission. Stealing is a crime in nearly every culture in the world. So stealing is a crime and is generally punished. But here we have a majority taking the property of the minority by the force of government. In other words, if the minority does not approve of the tax and they refuse to pay it, they go to jail. 
notice that it is the injured party as the one who goes to jail. Not the majority who stole the property through government. Isn't that interesting? I think it is time to start a national dialogue on this. Forcing property owners to pay a tax voted on them by non-property owners is called stealing. And it should not be tolerated by a just people. And in fact, the Declaration of Independence discussed this very issue with these words. Governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Governing without the consent of the people is the very definition of tyranny, and it has been the definition for thousands of years. But those who are in favor of a pure democracy realize that as a population grows, a pure democracy becomes unmanageable. It is physically impossible to get everyone together at one time so that a decision can be made. So they devised an alternative plan to meet this objection. The majority ruled by a majority of elected officials, and this is called a representative democracy. Here the people elect representatives where a majority of them decide for the people. But notice that the representative democracy does not address the problem of how they would protect the rights of the minority. So the problem is that both the democracy and the representative democracy do not protect the rights of the minority. The rights of the minority are not protected in any form of a democracy. So the problem becomes a search for a form of government that protects minority rights. And it is possible there is a form of government that protects minority rights. It is called a republic, a government of law, where the people and the government are restricted by a constitution. The constitution limits the powers of the government and the people. Now, I would like to provide you with a very simple illustration of the difference between a democracy and a republic, one that you have all seen in hundreds of Western movies. Yet no one has explained that this scenario is a very clear example of the difference between a democracy and a republic. <laughs> this is Main Street in a typical Western town. There are only two buildings in this town, a jail shown on the left and a saloon shown on the right. This first scene in the drama shows Dustin Hoffman portraying a mild-mannered shopkeeper in the saloon quietly drinking a non-alcoholic sarsaparilla. And that's him by the table to the left. You will notice that Mr. Hoffman is wearing a white hat, meaning he is a good guy. Clint Eastwood walks into the saloon, and <laughs> that is him on the right side. Notice that he's wearing a black hat, obviously meaning that he is a bad man. Clint provokes, provokes a fight with Dustin Hoffman by calling him names 
and Dustin rises to protect his honor. And Clint, <laughs> Clint, Clint shoots him dead. The town marshal, John Wayne, rushes into the saloon after hearing the gunshot and questions the people in the room about what happened. You will know that this is John Wayne. He not only wears a white hat, it is bigger than any white hat you will ever find in the Old West. The people there tell him that Clint Eastwood provoked a fight with Dustin Hoffman and shot him dead. So John Wayne takes Clint Eastwood to the jail and locks him up. The next scene shows a man standing up on the table to provoke the people in the saloon by demanding that they should go to the jail and lynch Clint Eastwood. You will recognize this man by the fact that he also wears a black hat, only it is different than the one worn by Clint Eastwood, but only in shape. His black hat means that he's a bad man as well. This man is called a demagogue, defined as a speaker who seeks to convince the democracy that they should take some action contrary to law. He urges the people in the saloon to take Clint Eastwood out of the jail and lynch him for what he did to Dustin Hoffman. The majority are being convinced by the demagogue to lynch the villain, and they vote by a majority to hang Clint Eastwood. This is called a democracy where the majority rules, no matter whether they are right or wrong. They are the majority, and in a democracy, they rule. The demagogue urges the democracy to march down the sidewalk to the jail and lynch Clint Eastwood. This is now called a mob, and down the sidewalk they go. Uh, oh, yes, <laughs> these scenes always occur at night, so the mob needs some sort of light to see where they are going, and out of nowhere, torches appear. Uh, the movies never show us where these torches come from. They just do. Now, the mob reaches the jail, and they demand that John Wayne hand Clint Eastwood over to them so that they, the democracy, now called a mob, can lynch him. John Wayne comes outside and convinces the mob that he will not do that, that Clint has a right to a fair trial where he can question witnesses in an attempt to prove his innocence. John Wayne is the republic protecting the rights of the minority against the majority. He persuades the democracy that they do not have the right to lynch, lynch Clint Eastwood and that he will protect the man just like he would protect anyone in the democracy. If John Wayne is effective in his words, the, word, the mob quietly dissipates, and Clint Eastwood's right to a trial is protected. He will get his day in court. Here is illustrated the difference between a democracy, meaning a mob led by a demagogue, and a republic where law protects the right of the minority against the will of the majority. Now let me read Article 4, Section 4 of the United States Constitution. The United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a republican form of government. 
So the government of the United States shall guarantee a John Wayne for every state. But that is not what is meant by this provision. This is a copy of the Federalist Papers written by Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and John Jay during the deliberation of the Founding Fathers. The Federalist Papers were issued in 1788 and consist of 85 essays outlining how this new government would operate and why this government was the best choice for the United States of America. Just as an aside, I named my publishing company Publius Press, and I added this paragraph to the bottom of my letterhead stationery. Publius was the pseudonym that Hamilton, Jay, and Madison used to write the Federalist Papers that explained the government that they were forming. They chose not to use their real names because they feared retribution. From the government of King George, who was creating a tyrannical government. I have chosen the same name because I also fear the retribution of government. Because I too publish the truth about government and tyranny. James Madison had been a driving force in the formation of the new nation and was called the father of the Constitution. He discussed the difference between a democracy and republic in Federalist Paper Number 10. A pure democracy, by which I mean a society consisting of a small number of citizens who assemble and administer the government in person. A republic, by which I mean a government in which the scheme of representation takes place. James Madison just defined a republic as a representative democracy. So America was not intended to have a republic as we define it today, a government of laws restricting the powers of the majority and of the government. We were given a representative democracy and told that it was a republic. So it is clear that we were not given a republic as we define it, a government where law protects man's unalienable rights from government and the will of the majority. Let me bring to your attention a rather strange philosophy of the liberal mind in America. I find it rather ironic that the liberal mind in America is all concerned with minority rights. Yet they are strong supporters of a pure democracy that has no protection of minority rights. I find that rather strange. Let me end our discussion of the political forms of government by saying that all forms of government created by man, except the true republic, are ruled by a few, and that form of government is called an oligarchy. Those who are part of the oligarchy lie to the people to make us believe that it is the people who are governing the nation and that we are protected by a constitution when they are often the ones behind the cover government. Now, once again, may I suggest 
that you consider watching my DVD entitled America's Secret Destiny to learn just how our founding fathers lied to us in many other ways. And in fact, they were major conspirators involving this nation in a 6,000-year-old conspiracy. But this is not the place to discuss this. Now, we have discussed the political form of government that our founding fathers gave us. Let us now discuss the economic form they provided. Let me start by giving you freshman economics as taught to me at the University of Arizona. Everything is either a consumption good or a capital good. Consumption goods are goods used for satisfying people's needs, such as food or clothing. Capital goods are commodities utilized in the production of consumption goods. <laughs> this, this is a consumer. <laughs> and this is a consumption good. The consumer chases the consumption good until he catches it for his daily nourishment. <laughs> but as time progresses, the consumer starts slowing down. And it seems as if the consumption good <laughs> speeds up. So the consumer creates a capital good, in this case a blowgun, to assist him in acquiring the consumption good. And with that creation, the consumer becomes a dreaded capitalist. Capitalism is any economic system that uses capital goods in acquiring consumption goods. Every society in the world is capitalistic. Every society creates capital goods to assist them in acquiring consumption goods. That means that even a communist society is a capitalist one. Because communists create capital goods just like free enterprise societies. So the question is, if both create capital goods, what is the difference between capitalism and communism? And the answer is, the difference is in who owns the capital goods. In the free enterprise system, the people own the capital goods. And we are taught that in the communist system, the state owns them. But the fact of ownership is not the key. It is who controls the capital goods. Let me give you a simple example. A father buys a new SUV. He buys the gasoline and pays for the insurance and for the maintenance. But his 16-year-old son drives it. The father owns the car, but he does not control it. The son does. Ownership without control means nothing. Let me create a table to assist in the understanding of these economic terms. So in the top line in the free enterprise system, the people own and control the capital goods. And under communism, the state owns and controls the capital goods. But there is one more system we haven't talked about so far, 
And this is a compromise between those who want a true free enterprise system and those who want a communist one. And in this system, the people own the capital goods, but the state controls them. And that system is called fascism. Fascism is an economic system wherein the people own the capital goods, but the state controls them. Here in America, the people own the capital goods. But the federal and state governments tell the owner what price they have to charge for their product or service. That they are cannot discriminate in the hiring of their employees. And that they must pay at least a minimum wage. They are told where they can build their store. They are told what types of signs they can put in front of their factories. And they are required to be state and federal tax collectors without pay for their services. And these are only a few of the myriad of rules, the myriad of rules and regulations the business owner must comply with. And all of this is called fascism. Now, let me put this into the table. Fascism, where the people own their capital goods, but the state controls them. So we have now examined the political and economic systems in the United States. And that we have determined that the claim that America is a free enterprise republic simply is not true. America is in truth a fascist economically, and an oligarchy politically. And let me remind you that this is all by design, and that I would recommend once again that you purchase a copy of my DVD entitled America's Secret Destiny. Details are provided in the catalog available from the address that follows. I would like to close with this rather amusing photograph that has made the rounds of the Internet some time ago. It shows a hunter sleeping with his rifle in his lap and a deer sneaking in while he's asleep to eat his lunch. I would like to use this photograph to illustrate a point. We are the sleeping hunter. And while we are sleeping, the teachings of the oligarchy that runs this country are secretly sneaking in to eat our lunch. And my admonition to you is this. It is time to wake up. Thank you so very much. And may God bless America.